Anybody wake up this morning, look outside, and think, how beautiful. Anybody go there? A few? I know, some of you went the other way. It's okay. It's okay. That's why you need to be here today, all right? But how beautiful, right? And I, I don't know, it, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like it snows that often anymore, and so when it does, there's something special that happens, I don't know, in my heart, just that reminder of God who wipes away all the stain of sin and makes us, he says, white as snow. Um, I'm hoping for another inch or so, honestly. I am. I don't want anybody having any accidents, and I don't want anybody freezing. Um, but I'm, I'm ready to jump on a sled at least once. You know what I'm saying? It seems like it's been a long time, and it's like another inch of snow. It can go away in like 24 hours. That's fine. But just enough to jump on a sled, and maybe uh, we could have a little fun. It seems like a good day to talk about being missed, right? Because sometimes the snow is the reason that, that sometimes we, we, we can't make it. Um, I appreciate you giving the effort today. Um, I grew up in the South, and in the South, if, if three flakes fell, actually, if they projected that three flakes were going to fall, everything shut down. It just did. Everything, school closed, businesses closed. And we heard about all these people in the north, which meant just above, anything above Arkansas, all right? And we heard about these people in the north who nothing stopped them in regards to weather. No, no, the snow, whatever, they just kept on trucking. And then I got here, I've been here for like 23 or 4 years now. Okay, that ain't true. That ain't true. They, they stop when they want to. That's what I've, that's what I've discovered. If, if they want the snow to stop them, it stops them. If they don't want it to, then uh, we got a way of pushing forward. I'm glad that you made an effort to be here today. How about we find out if God's got something to say to us today? I welcome you to week two of Be Missed. And it's not, talk about, not talking about missing church because of snow. Sometimes you got to do that. Sometimes you need to be safe. Um, it's also not a slogan about when you die. Be missed is not a slogan about when you die. Be missed is a call to live every day. It's a call to live today beyond myself. It's a call to live today that I would love other people. It's a call to live today so as to be missed. To be missed means you gotta have a connection. It's more than just an acquaintance. This is more than just knowing somebody, yeah, you know, her cousin was my whatever. It's like, no, it's, this is more than acquaintance. This is, this is more than proximity. Just being in the same office, just being in the same class, just being in the same house doesn't guarantee connection and doesn't mean that you would be missed. It's about pouring out our lives for others. I want that to be true of you. And I want it to be true of your church. There is an individual recorded in the story of the early church who lived such a life. As we study him, he does not seem to be the most talented guy on the team. And when it's all said and done, he will not be the guy that gets the most recognition on the team. But even in his name, which is actually, we know him by his nickname, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. If people walk away from you on a regular basis, encouraged about moving forward in life, you'll be missed. You'll be missed. Acts chapter 11. If you want to grab your Bible, I want you to see this story. This is where we chose to start with Barnabas' story. He's mentioned multiple places in the book of Acts, but we're going to hang out in Acts chapter 11 again today, take the story a little further. Next week, we'll expand it to some other places in Acts, but here's what it says. Acts chapter 11 Verse 19, let me read the story to you again. It says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution 
that broke out when Stephen was killed. Now, Stephen was killed because of his faith in Jesus. That's why he lost his life. He was bold about being a Jesus follower, and they killed him. It says, those that were scattered as a result of that traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. Now that's kind of home base. This is where it all started. This this is the capital of of, of Israel, God's God's people through which Jesus, right, came, and and this is where he died. This is where he, he rose again. News reached the church at Jerusalem, and they sent, here's our man, Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and he encouraged He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas is sent to find out. Barnabas, is what we hear that's going on in Antioch, is this really a Jesus thing? And we can't figure this out because, because what's happening there is we got some people who aren't Jewish, right? They didn't grow up with this whole background, and, and they seem to be believing in Jesus. There's something that's happening there. Barnabas, you go find out, is this really about Jesus? Are these Gentiles really turning to Jesus? Is this something of God, or is it something else? Is it something false? Barnabas goes, he sees, and he says... Yes, this is real. This is of Jesus. But Barnabas knows that these believers in Antioch are in danger. They're in danger. Now, the way I'm going to describe this danger is is due to the context in which I have witnessed this danger in my lifetime. Some of you come from a different background than me, and so you're going to use different words to describe the danger. I'm simply using this because this is where I come from. I, I are one, and so I can, I can do that, all right? Barnabas knows these believers in Antioch are in danger of becoming a Baptist church. They're in danger of becoming a Baptist church. Now, again, I'm using it because that's where I've been. Some of you are different background, but here's what I mean. Let me paint the picture with a story, perhaps. A child, he or she, comes to a place at the age of seven, seven years old, that they believe in Jesus. By believe in Jesus, I mean it's genuine. It is a genuine encounter with a, the Spirit of God who has is, who is opened their heart to see who Jesus really is. He really is the Son of God. He really did die for their sin. He really did rise from the dead. And the best their seven-year-old heart knows how to, they turn to Jesus and entrust life to him. And they are baptized as an outward picture of what has happened on the inside. But no one really takes the time to develop that seven-year-old's faith. And so they walk the next years with a seven-year-old faith, if you will, until they get to about 15. And at 15 years old, that's when the crisis stuff starts happening. That, that's when we're not really sure if we, if we know God 
is real, all the stuff that we're facing in this world. And so they end up at a church camp and they go forward to speak with the counselor at the church camp to say, I, I just don't know what's going on. I don't, I don't know if God is real. And the counselor says, you must not have trusted him when you were seven. And so again, there is this calling out of a, of a heart to God and that 15-year-old is baptized again to, to affirm an external picture of what has happened on the, on the outside. But again, nobody takes the time to pour into a 15-year-old faith. And so they walk out the next years of their life with a 15-year-old faith. Let's say we make it all the way to 21. 21's kind of that moment when, when if it hasn't hit before, it certainly hits the pressure of, of it's time to, to, to grow up, the pressure of adulthood, the pressure of decision-making and direction in life and all the stuff that, that comes your way. And they find themselves at 21 years old sitting in front of their pastor saying, I just don't know. I don't know what's happened. There was a time in my life where I felt close to God, but now I can't seem to find him. And the pastor says, you must not have really trusted Jesus when you were 15. And so, baptized again, but nobody links to their life to grow up a faith. And so it happens again at 40, it happens again at 55. It's why we have churches full of wrinkled people. It's not because they're old. It's because they've been in the water their whole entire life, over and over and over again. Wrinkled people. Now, I'm being a little facetious, but I ain't missing it by a whole lot. I'm not missing it by a whole lot. And some of you are so familiar with that story, and you didn't have to be Baptist to get that story. It happens in, in multiple churches, multiple denominations. The faith at Antioch was real. These believers, they have trusted Jesus. The experience with Jesus is real, but unless they are developed, this is not going to end well. Barnabas knows that, and he begins to ask the question, who, who could help us here? Who could help us do something about this young faith in Antioch? Who could help us develop this? I mean, who would, would understand the pressures of a secular culture? Because that's where we are in Antioch. Well, what I mean by that is this ain't Jerusalem. This is not a Jewish background. This is, not a, this is not a history that's got God in the background and Ten Commandments and the whole picture. This is, this is a, a, a secular, this is a, a Greek background, a Hellenistic culture. Who are we going to get who understands the pressure of a secular culture? If you say, I don't know what you mean by secular culture, I mean the one you're walking in. That is not a Christian culture. Well, we could go get Simon Peter, except already Simon Peter has been reminded by God himself several times, Simon, I love everybody, not just the Jews. Simon seems to be hung up on that sometimes. Who are we going to get? Who are we going to get? Who are we going to get who understands an unshakable experience of being confronted by the risen Jesus? I'm saying, who are we going to get who really has had an encounter with Jesus, one that is real? They know who Jesus is. This relationship with him is so solid that it doesn't matter what circumstances unfold in life, their story's not going to change in regards to what they've got with Jesus. Who are we going to get who understands God's great salvation story from Scripture? Because what these folks need is some foundation, 
Not just somebody's opinion, but what is God about? Barnabas, who are you going to find who can do that? And the answer is Saul. Saul, as in the one that you've read his story in Acts, that at one time he was a persecutor of the church, but now Saul's a preacher. And so I I want us to understand there's a risk that Barnabas is taking. There's a risk he's taking to go get Saul because you got this persecutor of the Christians. He once hunted them down. Now he claims to be one of them. What church is going to hire that guy yet? What church is going to go, yeah, we're, we're really sure that Paul really is who he claims to be. Who's going to do that? That's a tough resume. And so what we know at this point, Saul has gone back to his hometown, which is Tarsus. And what he is doing there is grounding in the scripture. That's what the picture of the Bible gives us. He is grounding in the scripture. In other words, he is studying God's great salvation story from Scripture. Why is he doing that? Why is it he's still persecuting the Christians? It's because he had an unshakable experience being confronted by the risen Jesus. It happened on that road to Damascus. Jesus causes this head-on collision, and everything changed that day for Saul. And it just so happens, Saul was born a Roman citizen. That means he understands a secular culture. He understands a culture that didn't grow up with all this religious background. And so, verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for who? Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. That's cool. What I think is amazing about this verse is how little we really, I believe, usually sees, understand what's going on in this verse. We read it. Barnabas goes to Tarsus, looks for Saul, brings him back, brings him to Antioch. We go, okay. I'm saying, can we just pause at least for a second And me ask the question, do you understand how much effort that took? He's got to get to Tarsus, which means he did not jump on a plane. He did not not get in a vehicle. We're talking, these are the days where this kind of journey usually took perhaps weeks even. Not just days, weeks. And then when he gets to Tarsus, we're told that he looks for him. That's the word. It is literally a word search. In other words, he didn't find him on Facebook. Couldn't couldn't even, some of y'all don't even know these exist, but there used to be phone books that you could look in and find people's names and and addresses. None of that. None of that. He has to go, and the word is a searching. It's literally the picture that that, that Barnabas is going all over Tarsus trying to find out where is Saul. And so you got the travel, and you got the search. You've got the money that's involved in all that. You've got the time that's unfolding here, weeks to travel there. Who knows how long it took to find him, weeks to travel back. You got Saul, who's got to pick up everything he owns to go to Antioch. This thing was costly. It was not easy. We read the verse and we go, oh, that was a good idea, Barnabas. Good idea. Go get Saul, bring him back. This required an enormous amount of sacrifice on both men's part. But it's because Barnabas knows the danger. He knows the danger. And he brings with him the guy who understands. So check this out. Go back to verse 26. So for a whole year, this this wasn't just, hey, 
hey, Saul, can you come join me for a couple weeks and let's do like a couple weeks of teaching. No, this is for a whole year. Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Now, when we hear whole year, what we tend to think is, that's cool. That's an awesome commitment that Paul would make. Uh, I keep calling him Paul. You understand the same guy. Saul eventually will be known as Paul. All right, so if you hear me say Saul or Paul, um, same guy. So cool that he would give a year. We think that, that would enable him, right? At, at least 52 times. He, he gets to like, teach every Sunday. I mean, you know, every time the people gather on Sunday, he could do some teaching. And then probably you would think it was likely they would offer like a special class that, that Saul could probably teach for those who are wanting to take some next steps. You know, maybe once every, I don't know, two months, something like that. Uh-uh. Almost every scholar agrees when you read the context of Acts and you read what we've already gained in the first 10 chapters about the early church, when it says they met for a whole year, almost every scholar agrees because of the context and the history, it is likely they met pretty much every day. Every day. Look it up. You go back and, and read how the, how the early church met together. Yes, they would gather on Sundays to, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, but they would meet almost every day. Now, obviously, Barnabas and Saul do not know how to start a church. All right? Because you just can't. You cannot go to some place, call people to a faith in Jesus and go, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's what's required for a year. We, we're going to meet every day, right? We're going we to meet here together. We're going to have dinner together. And then, and then we're going to teach. We're going to teach. Obviously, they know nothing about church growth or church planting. And we say that makes no sense. We, we don't have that much time. And I'm telling you that these first century believers had much less control of their time than you and I did. There's no labor laws working on their behalf. You know when they got home from work? Whenever their boss said, we're done today. Some of you are like, well, that's how it works for me. Well, sort of. Some of them were even slaves. And so you talk about freedom or the lack of it. And what they did with their time, they met every day. There are glimpses that were given of how the church did this early on. Anybody remember the story? There was one time that Paul is teaching in this house, house full of people. It was more than a one-story house because we know that on this particular night, there was a dude sitting in a window listening to Saul teach. Now, he's probably in the window because there ain't no A.C., right? So weather-wise, by the windows, where you wanted to be, you got the breeze blowing through. Apparently, dude had a tough day because he fell asleep. It's in the Bible. Fell asleep, fell out the window, and died. That's a bad church service, right? <laughs> Paul goes down, prays over him. Dude comes back to life. Okay, that's the way. That's the way you want to end the church service. Oh, no. They all march back into the house. I mean, seriously, wouldn't we all go, okay, I think God's wrapping it up, right? He just raised somebody from the dead. I think, I mean, how are we going to top that? We got no song to make it feel better than that, right? We got, we got nothing to take it to a next level. We're done. No, they go back into the house. And it says that Saul taught until morning. It was the pattern that we see in those early believers who so needed to grow in their faith. And they had people who would give it to them. Get this, they didn't even have the New Testament yet. If we did that, we said, we're going to study the Bible all night long. We ain't going to look at the New Testament. Y'all, <gasps> all they had was the Old Testament. You know what they did with the Old Testament? They pointed people to Jesus. The New Testament was being written. They were the New Testament, right? It, they're, they're the story. It's being, it's being written. 
And out of that, they would teach people God's great salvation story. I'm saying, can we acknowledge how much is available to us now in comparison to that? Right? We got New Testament, right? And we, we still just go back to this deal. We just, yeah, Jeff, it, it, we just don't have time. No, we do. We do. All right? Now, I'm not solving that today. That, that's going to take, take some time for us and, and praying as, as God changes some things in how we see it. But we do have time. We, we may not be able to watch our five hours of TV a day. Right? You, you may not be able to watch that one more dancing cat video. Right? You might not be quite as good at Call of Duty, but you got time. You got time. And I want you to recognize you have time now. And God has positioned you in such a time and in such a place with such a people that you now have the chance to grow up in your faith if you have never begun to take those steps before. Now, you, you got to go after it. You got to go after it. The, those, that is the heart behind things like directions that we have just been walking through as a church. We're almost to the end of that study for the first time. And I say the first time because from what we're hearing and from what people are saying, that's the kind of thing that we want to, to pour into people's lives, especially early on. When, when somebody first begins to put their, their trust in Jesus, we, we want to walk them through some, some first things first of, hey, here's what it means to pray and, and here's, here's what this Bible is when we call it the Bible. Here's what it is. But then to walk them through something like directions where every day you're in God's word, but it is building you, teaching you God's great salvation story. And by the time you're done with that 18 weeks, you walk away going, I got a pretty good idea of what this is about. You have the opportunity to do that, but you got to take it. And some of you, that's the message. you got to take it, right? Uh, this is the way it works in our culture. It's like, okay, I'm really weak in my finances. I need some healing, and so we offer financial peace, and you don't take it because you don't want anybody else to know that you're weak. It's like, well, I, I really need to grow in my faith. And we go, okay, here's directions. And we go, well, and then you don't take it because, like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I want to get in a group of people and then find out what I don't know. you got to go after it. You got to go after it. And I'm saying I want us to become a place, a people with a mindset that, look, we want to be a church that gives people time to evaluate in a healthy way who Jesus is. We, we want to be a place that really does let people come in. And sometimes people like to sit, and, and they want to be able to listen, and I believe that God's Spirit does that in, in a safe place where the questions can be asked, and they can hang out for a while, and nobody's shoving Jesus down their throat in, a, in an inappropriate way. We just want to be a place that pushes Jesus in a biblical picture of what it means to push Jesus, and what it means to say, this is how Jesus loves you, and he's calling you to him. But I'm also saying, when you take that step, man, we want to be a place who almost views this thing like, look, we're going to give you the next year of our lives. We're going to start with those basic things. Here's how you pray. Here's how you read your Bible. We're going to start with things like directions that takes you through that. Then we want to take you through a little study called Your, your Life on Mission so that you see how all of this attaches together. We want to give you a year of our lives but listen, sometime within that year, and definitely by the end of it, you should already be pouring that into someone else. To be missed requires connection. And so one of the things I wanna challenge you with as God's kids today is are you connected to someone right now who does not yet know Jesus, but you are intentionally connecting to them this year because you're praying for the opportunity to share with them 
about who he is and to call them to him. And second, are you connected to someone who has recently put their faith in Jesus and they need to be grown up? And you are intentionally spending time this year doing your part to pour into them Hopefully, the way somebody poured into you, or if they didn't, all the more reason. Are you attached to somebody who's not yet a Jesus follower? And are you attached to someone who recently has become? And I'm telling you, 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 you make that sort of intentional move in your life to build such a relationship I think you will be amazed by the end of the year how intentional God has been in taking you on those next steps of growing you up to see who he is and what he has called you to be. If you're going to do that, you need the Bible and you need other believers. You cannot do that on your own because the first person you will lie to is you. You need some people who love you and some people who will walk it out with you. Here's the result in, in Antioch. Go back to verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And we read that and we go, oh, that's so, that's so cool. Why didn't they call them Christians somewhere else? Well, here's the context. The term Christians means little Christ. That's what it means, little Christ. And so we're told that it was at Antioch that this term, this, this designation was, was first given to them, little Christ. Here's the context. In that day, religious people, now I'm not talking about just Jesus' followers, I'm, I'm talking about religious people of the day. The way their journey would often work is they would travel to different cities. In traveling to different cities, they would, they would attend different temples, and in those different temples, different gods would be worshipped. That's the way it worked. Pagan world, many gods, depends on what city you were in, depends on what temple you were in, depends on what gods were highlighted in that temple. When you travel to such a place, and you would participate in, in such a temple, you would purchase a statue an image of whatever God was highlighted in that particular temple. So at Ephesus is one thing, and whatever town you're in, temple, there's a God attached to it, you would purchase a little image. I'm convinced this is the beginning of the bobblehead. I think it probably is, right? No, I just made that up. I don't know if it is or not, but it's the picture. So for those of you who collect bobbleheads, right, some of you, you're Royals fans and whatever, and you got the whole bobblehead thing going, what do you do? You get the bobblehead, you bring it back to your house, you set it up on the shelf so that when everybody comes in, they see your beautiful bobblehead collection, right? That's kind of the way it was in that day. You buy the little statue, the little image, you bring it back, you put it in your house, and when people come over, they look at your shelf of images, and they go, hmm. You go, this is where I've been, and this is where I've worshipped. Sort of this measure of your spiritual journey. At Antioch, these new believers aren't building any little statues of Jesus. Nobody's carving out any little bobbleheads for you to take home from the, from the, from the church, right, in Antioch. Who were the little Christs? It wasn't a carving it was the people. That's the significance of that term. Now please understand, it wasn't the believers in Antioch who were standing up going, we are the little Christ. No, it was the people of the city of Antioch who looked at those believers of Jesus and said, they're the little Christ. Now that's a totally different matter. This is not the church calling itself hey, we look like Jesus, this is, the, this is the secular culture around them watching how these believers live their lives and saying, you are little Christ. 
You look just like him. Listen to me. When you hang around with Jesus, change happens. Change happens in how you live. Change happens in what you want. It change, change happens in what matters most to you. If you don't change, you are not hanging out with Jesus. I will say it again. If you don't change, you are not actually hanging out with Jesus. Because people who hang around Jesus, they change. They change. Back in the day, there was a season in my life where um, I spent um, a number of weeks in the summer at um, FCA camps, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And they would, they would ask me to go to these camps, and it was really cool setting because, I mean, it, it was always somewhere fun because it's camp and you're trying to get kids there. And, and it, it, it could be whatever sport. I mean, it could be basketball. It could be football. It could be golf, right? I did a number of golf camps where they bring in these really good student golfers from all over the state of Missouri. They bring them to this place. They, they, they bring in instructors who know their stuff. They teach them um, skill, you know, level in terms of golf. And I was the guy who every night got to tell them about Jesus. It's a pretty good gig. It's a pretty good gig. So in that process, almost every time, we would see groups of students turn toward Jesus for the first time and put their faith in him. They would. I mean, it's a camp setting. It's an opportunity to really pour into their lives, and, and you would see sometimes large numbers of students put their trust in him. There was a guy who worked that camp um, with me. He was really the guy in charge. And, and I always loved it when, when they would put their faith in Jesus and then he would sit them down and he would begin to talk to them about next steps. And he would say, all right, you, you just made a decision to turn your life toward Jesus, right? That's because of what Jesus has shown you. But now it, it's time for you to grow in, in what you've just done. And he described to them, he goes, you know, there's still that part of you, right, that, that at times is going to want to do the thing that you know is not the right thing to do. That, that stuff's not all gone yet. There's still a, a fight that goes on. But you, you now have Jesus who is within you, and he wants to empower you to help you to, to make those decisions. And then he would use this phrase. He would say, you got this battle going on. You got this wage, this war waging. And he said, this was the phrase he would use. I'll never forget it. He said, whichever dog you feed most is going to win. Whichever dog you feed most. He wasn't being, you know, he wasn't trying to downplay. He wasn't calling out a dog. He, wasn't, he was just saying, you got a dog fight going on in you. And whichever one you feed the most is going to win. I've never forgotten that. And so the picture is, you can watch TV for five hours a day if you want to and buy into that 10 minutes of, you know, connection with Jesus a day, whether that's reading your Bible or a little bit of prayer um, you, you, can, you can fight that way, but his point was, you're going to lose that fight. You're going to lose that fight. Because he said, which worldview is going to capture your mind? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you've got to spend all day in your house reading your Bible, praying. But his point was, you, you do not need to buy into this thing that you can just take a bite of this every once in a while and think you're going to win this fight. It is going to take your life entrusted to Jesus. Yeah, maybe 10 minutes is the way you can start your day, and you're in his word, and you're getting that truth, and you're praying, God, help me live it out. And then throughout the day, there are moments that you keep leaning into him, and you're trusting him, and you're asking him, how, how do you want me to move here, and how do you want me to love this person? He's saying, but you, you can't just take a bite in the morning and then check out till tomorrow morning when you're going to take another bite. In the meantime, you're watching all these hours of a worldview that is filling your head you ain't gonna win that fight you're not gonna win that fight 
Growth is not you just quit doing some things. That's sometimes how we push what it means to follow Jesus. You trust in Jesus and then you quit doing all that bad stuff. No, just to quit doing all the bad stuff, you don't just want to empty the house. You want to make sure the house is filled back up with the one that you have been made to know in his fullness. And that's what Jesus does in you. It's your life on mission. That's, that's really one of the next steps we want us to study together as a church. We just, we've just moved through directions now. It's like, what do we do with this? How, how do we see our life being on mission with what we've been given? Who does Jesus use on mission? You might be thinking, man, it, it can't be me. No, it can. It can. Let me, let me remind you what Paul said in another place. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he said, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. In other words, you're, you're, you're sitting there thinking, who, who I, I can't live up to. I, I can't ever know enough. I, it, because of my past, because of where I've been, because of what I don't know, God can never. No, that's what Paul's saying. This is what God specializes in. All the way through the story, he picked a little tiny nation, right, of Israel. Small and compared to, to most other right, nations of the world. And he goes, I'm, I'm going to go through this. We see, we see it in the people that, that he uses. I, how about King David, right? We, we look at King David and we go, what a mighty man. I mean, what an incredible king. Remember how that starts? That starts with Samuel being told to go to Jesse's house. And God said, I'm going to show you who the king is. And so Jesse starts introducing his sons. God's like, nope, that ain't him. Next one, nope, that ain't him. Next one, nope, that ain't him. He rolls through seven, right, sons, I believe it is. And everybody's standing there looking at each other and Samuel's going, nope. And then Samuel asked the question to Jesse, do you have any more sons? All right, that cracks me up. That's like standing in the store and a stranger asked the dad, do you have all your kids with you? Right? And you're going, one, two, three, four, five. Oh, no. Right? And, and, and Jesse goes, oh, yeah, there's another one. Seriously? If your dad has to go, oh, yeah, there's another one, right? I'm thinking David didn't have a great Christmas. You know what I'm saying? I, probably not a great Christmas, but here's my point. He became the king of Israel. He became the king of Israel. Would you have chosen David? Probably not, because that's not how most of us evaluate. He was the smallest. He was the youngest, right? Would you have chosen Simon Peter? Probably not, right? He's a hothead sometimes, right? You never know what he's going to say. Would you have chosen Saul, persecutor of the church? Probably not. Would you choose you? Probably not. But the greatest news I've got for you here today is that this is really, and it always has been, about Jesus. And in Antioch, they didn't call them little Sauls, and they didn't call them little Barnabases. They called them little who? Christ. And it isn't even about people growing up to be little you. And so, yes, in our weakness and in our struggles and in what we don't have, we go, yep, that's who we are. This is, this is, what, this is what we got to work with. And God goes, I know. But I'm going to make them look like me, he says. People who have an understanding of the pressures of this secular culture. People who understand an unshakable experience of being confronted by the risen Jesus. And people who understand God's great salvation story from Scripture. I'm asking you to help us grow up together. And so for some of you, it means to take some initial steps. It means that maybe you just have become a new follower of Jesus. And there are some first steps you need to take about, about knowing. Here, here's the foundation. 
We really do want to walk you through this directions thing. I want us to get to the point that every person that comes into Heart of Life, this is a first step that we take. That this is what we know this is about, and this is, this is what we want you to get. But that means we need some of you to help us walk people through that. We need you to help us walk people through that. And if you took directions already and you would say, well, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I could, I don't know if I know enough to walk somebody through it, then you know what your next step is? You're taking directions again. Seriously. Take it again. If you're walking away from that and going, I just don't know if I got everything that I'm supposed to get, I'm going to say, I will give you, take it again. But then there comes this point where, look, he's given you that foundation that you need. You have a relationship with Jesus, and you know what it's like to live in this crazy world. It's time for you to pour that into somebody else. The question I'm asking today also is, will you help us do that with our children? Will you help us do that with our children? I'm going to ask the band to come forward as I kind of unpack this, and then we're going to pray. If you don't know enough that you feel like you could pour some of that into our kids, then I'm saying it's time to go through directions again. We're not going to give up on this thing because, folks, it matters. And I think it's so much more than right now we fully understand. It matters what we pour into our kids. When they're seven, when they're 15, it matters. And it's work. It's work. Discipleship has always been work. It was for the church at Antioch, and it still is today. It is work. Because you are fighting against something, everything else that's flowing at you, you're teaching how to walk against it. It is work. It takes an enormous amount of time. It takes an enormous amount of energy. It takes an enormous amount of resources. But do we really understand? Our mission is not just to get our kids baptized. We then want to go after them with an intensity that they would see who Jesus is and that he is worth following with all their heart. I'm saying, come on, we get this with school. We, 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 we push our kids to go to school and do their best. We, we push them to go to practice and do their best. We, we push them in those directions. We make sure that they get their homework every night. Are you making sure at the end of every day that you did something to pour into them regarding Jesus. I'm saying we have been lulled to sleep. We have been lulled to sleep. We have got to go after this with a different intensity. And some of that means we need some of you to help us. You heard TJ give the announcement. We need some folks to help us in children's church. We need some folks to help us in Bible study. That is just a small part, but come on, we got to start there. And there's enough of us that nobody has to be overwhelmed with that, doing it completely themselves. We really can help us do that. Here's, here's where I'm going to end. There was a day in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful Anybody know the rest of the phrase? But the workers are few. In other words, he's saying, look at all these people who don't know who I am. They, they don't know wh what they're made for. They don't know that they're made to, to know me and to be loved. And they don't know. And, and the harvest, they're everywhere. But there's so few workers. And then he said, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Here's what I find amazing. Jesus did not say form a committee. Jesus did not say make a job description for what that will take. He did not say it's time for some vision meetings. He did not say time for strategy meetings. He said pray. Because Jesus knew there are some issues that are spiritual issues. And the only way you win is spiritual weapons. And when it comes to people believing and seeing, they are made to pour back in to those who are walking this faith behind them. To not see that 
is spiritual blindness. And the only thing that will break that open is spiritual power. I challenge us to pray that God will raise up leaders. And in church, that means servants. That God will raise up people who will serve. And I challenge you to realize if you pray that, you are part of the answer to the prayer. We'll take a next step next week. Let's pray. God, Barnabas leaves us no no question here. He leaves no doubt in us. God, this aspect of seeing people grow in their faith, God, that this 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 aspect of, of our lives being just engulfed in who you are and wanting to know more of who you are and how you work, God, that leads us to live life to the fullest, to serve the people around us. God, there, there are pieces of that that seem to be missing at times. God, I think in the, in the church as a whole across our nation, God, sometimes in, right here in our own, I, I'm asking that you would give us eyes that can see. And I'm asking just like you told us to, that you would, you would call people out. Call people out of sleep. That we may fight for those whose faith needs to be developed. God, may we fight for our children. May we fight for those new believers. May you put that within us, God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.